Hello, and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Jason Jenkins, and I'm standing on the sidewalk in Osaka's Shinsaibashi shopping district directly in front of the Osaka branch of the luxury retailer Louis Vuitton, and I'm looking at the window displays. The first thing I see are these massive pumpkin sculptures covered in thousands of colorful dots. Next to them are mannequins, also covered in dots. And the clothes the mannequins are wearing, you guessed it, dots. Behind the mannequins is a massive LED screen, maybe six, seven meters tall. On screen, there's a woman wearing a polka dot dress and a red wig, busily painting an even larger pumpkin. The woman I see is animated, but she's based on a real person, Yayoi Kusama, one of the most successful living artists today. If you were in London, Paris, New York, or Tokyo right now, you would see Kusama at the Louis Vuitton stores there as well, sometimes as an animatronic robot, sometimes as a giant inflatable doll looming over the building with her paintbrush. In response to all the recent fanfare, Japan Times culture writer Tu Hung Ha has written a recent piece on Kusama, and I invited her on to talk to me about Kusama's life, her work, her cultural influence, and possibly a hint at the next step in her evolution. Hey, Tu. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed your piece on Yayoi Kusama last week, and I want to start the show off by just simply asking, who is Yayoi Kusama? A deceptively simple question, Jason. (laughs) Well, first of all, Yayoi Kusama is an artist. She's one of the most successful living Japanese artists. Mm -hmm. But I think it's actually an important question to ask because her name might not be as recognizable to listeners as her work. She is the maker of the famous pumpkin. (laughs) You know the pumpkin. (laughs) She, uh, The pumpkin in Aoshima. That pumpkin has appeared all over the world in different forms. The most iconic one, I think, is like the yellow and black one. But there's also like a red and black one. So some people, I think, might only know her from that. You're talking about the yellow and black pumpkin. A lot of people know the sculpture in Naoshima in Japan's Inland Sea, that massive one that sits right out in front of the water. Yes, famously blew away in a typhoon in 2021. But you might also see that on posters or T-shirts or lots Mm -hmm. of other places. Mm -hmm. I had it as my Twitter banner for a while. (laughs) And um, she's also known by other people as the polka dot princess or princess of polka dots. Um, Heavy use of the dots. mm -hmm. Lots and lots of dots. And she's also known for her infinity rooms. But if you've never seen a cue for Ayayu Kusama piece, um, you know, I've seen people crowd around the pumpkin in Naoshima. I've seen people wrapped around the block in the winter in New York to get into the infinity room. You know, one thing that she's known for is creating these massively popular pieces that people actually want to stand in line for. But she doesn't just have mass appeal, right? Collectors want to buy her work as well. Yeah, definitely. She's considered the best-selling female artist on the art market. In 2020, she generated a total of $67 million at auction. That following year, $174 million. And that pushed her into the top 10 globally selling artists of that year. And that was the first time a female artist got into that list. Wow. So, you know, she can be considered a mainstream artist. She can be considered a best-selling artist. I think that certain collectors don't take her seriously, though, and some people might consider her a phony, a fraud, or even a sellout. Why is that? 
Well, I think that, you know, the reason that we're talking today is that she's done this collaboration with Louis Vuitton. It's actually the second time she's done it, but this one is a huge sort of all-encompassing collaboration. Right. And she's been part of this campaign, this marketing campaign that is really over the top. And people, you know, it's... It's a little silly. Um, you know, obviously that's a very subjective word to use, but you know, she, when I say she, I mean a Kusama-esque likeness, mm-hmm. uh, appeared in the window fronts of Fluid Bouton stores in New York City and in Tokyo. Um, so it's a sort of humanoid robot painting dots on the windows. In Paris, there is like a huge kind of Macy's parade level like balloon. Uh, It's inflatable. Inflatable. I I wasn't sure what it was. Yeah, it it has to be an inflatable. It's inflatable. Yeah. It's sort of clinging to the top of the flagship store there. And I mean, they're not classy. I mean, (laughs) they're not elegant. But, But what they are is over the top and they are global. Right. And I mean, that's one of the reasons we're talking about her today is because this is a massive campaign and uh, they've put Kusama front and center. And those dots, those dots are there again. We've got dots now on luxury bags and the same kinds of dots that she was painting back in the 60s. Right. That's right. These sort of repeating patterns, almost claustrophobic. And, And why dots and why so many? Well, she has often said that her art is a way of her dealing with her own obsessions and her own trauma. So I think infinity is infinity anything, you know, infinity tiny LED lights, infinity polka dots, infinity nets, which is another one of her themes. All of these are part of her attempt at dealing with a kind of obsession. Right. Infinity is like one of the main themes that you see in all her work, the mirrored rooms. Mm. Anyone who's ever been in, say, a mirrored dressing room or a mirrored uh, elevator knows how it just seems to go on forever and ever. And she uses that effect, for those who haven't seen it, with dots to go on forever or LED lights that go on forever. And this really is kind of a, you know, this endless space or these endless dots are really tied into the themes and sort of the ideas she's trying to express. That's right. Yeah. She has said that one of her recurring hallucinations is to see this overlay of dots on top of everything. Um, And she has work that mimics that hallucination. And since you mentioned the hallucinations, this touches on another main thing that people know about Kusama is her struggles with mental health. Right. She's very open about it. As I said, she sees her work as a way of dealing with some of her obsessions. And she returned to Tokyo from the U.S. just under 50 years ago. And she's lived in a psychiatric hospital ever since she came back. Kusama is now living in a a mental institution. But by day, she occupies across the street in a busy suburban neighborhood of Tokyo, a very well-appointed studio facility where she has a team of assistants and she has a space for painting she has a space for her library her archive and every morning she gets there and she's the consummate professional and she works from nine to six and now i knew all of this all of the stuff we've talked about i think anybody interested in contemporary art knows at least a few of those facts about yayoi kusama but i think a lot of people still imagine her as this you know old woman in a red wig painting dots. I think maybe I did as well. But after reading your piece, I kind of dug in a little more and started uh, researching her. And I was just really surprised how little I knew about her life as a whole. Yeah, she's, you know, she's 93. (laughs) (laughs) 
She has been making art for a long time. A long and time. she's really been around. And so, yeah, it makes sense that now the image that most people have of her is this old lady. But, you know, in the 60s, um, I think one thing that surprises people is that 10 years after she arrived in New York City, she was staging these pretty radical happenings. This was the era of happenings in art. 60s counterculture and exactly. the art of the time, right? Yeah. She was throwing orgies, dude. Like she, <laughs> and like, I don't know how else to put it. Like, right, she, right, right. <laughs> she was There's getting There's no people. delicate way to put <laughs> orgies was... <laughs> in the garden of, of a museum, right? Um, I think part of what she was celebrating was the free love movement. She was also protesting the American Vietnam War. She was getting people to meet in like the Museum of Modern Art Sculpture Garden, a very, you know, stiff place at the time. And, you yeah. know, people were undressing, people were starting to make out, people were starting to have sex. And she was there. She was wearing like this really intense makeup and she was painting people. She would let people come to her studio and pay to paint naked models. She had this alleged like list of like 400 young gay men that she was like had on call that people could just like come and take them into a back room, question mark, question mark, like, and, <laughs> you know, paint them, question mark, question mark. Um, for a price, right? For, for a price. price. Oh, she, yes. was, she, she had an she, entrepreneurial spirit, obviously. A, yes, exactly. She was running these as businesses. Those are words that she uses, enterprises. One of my favorite of her works is one of her very early styles um, was soft sculptures. I saw them um, years ago at one of her retrospectives. They were, they're so gross. Like they're sort of like sofas and like couches, <laughs> chairs with just like covered in sort of like these tubular penises. And like they make you feel gross, but they're really, really compelling. Mm -hmm. So she's really, yeah, she's really tried a lot of things, been successful, gotten famous, and then, you know, just done something totally different. Yeah, and this stands in contrast to sort of Kusama as a person. She's been very vocal that she doesn't like sex. Mm -hmm. There may have been some trauma with that. I'm not sure. But she was throwing sex parties, but not participating in them. She's making these sculptures of penises, but said she was terrified of them. Mm -hmm. uh, she just had this strange dichotomy in her relationship with sex. And then you mentioned the cadre of young gay men. She even performed a wedding ceremony for two men? Yeah, she had a gay wedding in New York. She threw a gay wedding. That was, I think, 35 years, give or take, before the first same-sex marriage was legal in the United States. So she's not just that wig lady in the window. Certainly not. I mean, these stories sort of flesh out this idea of she was a subversive, essentially, mm -hmm. and was for many, many years before she began to shill <laughs> luxury handbags. Right. Yeah, she was a rebel. We've talked about Yayoi Kusama, the artist. Where does she come from, though? Where did it all start? Well, she was born in 1929 in Matsumoto. She comes from a wealthy family, not especially supportive of her art. <laughs> in particular, her mother. She talks often about her mother coming upon Kusama and uh, either tearing up her illustrations or her materials. It wasn't really appropriate for a woman of her standing to become an artist. She thought, if anything, maybe she could be collector. But she really obviously just wanted her to quit and get married. Ah, uh, right. And Kusama decided that if she really wanted to 
pursue what she wanted to make, she'd have to leave Japan. And around that time, she came upon the work of George O'Keefe. Ah, George O'Keefe, the American painter. Most people would know or at least recognize her large flower paintings or the sort of landscapes of New Mexico. Right. So Kusama wrote to O'Keefe and asked for her advice. And O'Keefe wrote back, surprisingly, uh, I mean, to Kusama's surprise, um, you know, some pretty, some encouraging, but, you know, pretty blunt words about how difficult it would be for Kusama to pursue art in the U.S. In 1958, she arrives in New York. It's worth mentioning. I mean, this is U.S. in 1958. World War II had not ended that long ago. And here's this Japanese woman showing up trying to break into the art world. Right. I mean, art in the United States is white and male, and it was a lot more of those two things um, <laughs> at that time. But I liked how she seemed to be able to find a way to turn this obstacle into sort of an advantage. How did she do that? Yeah, in coverage about her, people who knew her at the time describe her as showing up at the galleries and really promoting herself and really, really trying to make the right connections. So she's going to different galleries. She's trying to find funders. She's trying to convince people to give her shows. And I think she's really struggling. She's seeing how much of a boys club it was. And so by some accounts, she's kind of started to play up her own differences, her Japanese-ness, her femininity. Um, and she started to wear kimono to big events and, you know, attracting attention to herself. And she was, you know, she was pretty ruthless. And I think that she was, by these same accounts, she was looking for the right influential men to be her patrons and to help her navigate the world. So to me, this seems to be like one of the early signs of a track or, uh, well, I see it as sort of these two tracks she's on. There's this one track of sort of the concepts and the ideas she's working with and the art she makes from that. And then there's this other tract of her sort of fortifying her image or sort of building up her own sort of mystique. Is that how you see it? I mean, I'm not sure I see it as two tracks at all. I think it's really, it's one track. It's an all-encompassing sort of um, force ah. yeah, that is mm -hmm. part of who she is as an artist. Right. Whether or not, you know, it started that way is different. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Maybe sort of to paint a picture of the art world in the 50s and 60s, you know, she was contemporaries with people like Andy Warhol, with mm -hmm. Lucas Samaras. And I mentioned these two in particular mm -hmm. because, you know, she has essentially stated that they may have even lifted some of her ideas. Yes, there have been some claims made. Kusama alleges that Andy Warhol, Lucas Samaras, and Klaus Oldenburg all took ideas from her, essentially. I mean, what we can say for sure is that before Klaus Oldenburg, who's known for these big, soft, like, hamburgers and big soft sculptures ever came out with any work like that, Kusama had just done it. Yeah, when I read about her making that claim, I went and I checked on it and I looked and, you know, those chairs that you're talking about that she made with all the protuberances on it, that was in a show in June of 1962. Oldenburg soft sculptures, September of 1962. We're talking just a few months later and he had never done anything like that. So it, it is a little suspect, don't you think? I mean, I think what we can say is that she was well ahead of her time, you know? I mean, she really felt overlooked for her art. And I think that she was having a lot of trouble getting into the galleries, getting all these gatekeepers to approve of her and invite her. And 
that might have pushed her to start doing these happenings in public places where she was sort of on her own terms. I mean, yeah, cops were there, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I think that what she did at the 1963 Venice Biennale was a perfect example of this. Oh, yeah. Break that down for us. So, you know, the Venice Biennale is one of the biggest events of the global art calendar. Different countries are invited to do their own pavilions and to showcase their own artists. Kusama in 1963 was not invited <laughs> officially, um, but she showed up anyway, determined to show her art at uh, the Venice Biennale. She she still maintains that she got like a verbal OK from the committee, but she was not like part right. of the... The, she wasn't in the program, essentially. She was not in the program, yeah. She was not in the pavilion. Um, she brought all these mirrored balls and she put them on the grass and started to sell them. Two dollars at the time, you know, zero narcissism. Yeah, right. It was a statement on narcissism. I saw the picture. There's actually a sign that said, like, narcissism for sale, right? Right, right. Something like that. And she got in trouble. The Biennale officials came up to her, told her to pack up and leave. And at that point, she took off her the kimono she was wearing and she was wearing this, like, bright red leotard underneath and she started to like kind of dance among the balls and like lie in the grass and stuff and there were all these photos that came out and you know i think she blows up quite a bit as the kind of enfant terrible of this you know 1963 biennale yeah so she's kicked out or is she kicked out it's not clear but you know the venice biennale of 1963 she is told to leave but then you kind of fast forward 30 years, and in 1993, at the Venice Biennale, she's representing the entire country of Japan. One woman show. One of the first times that had ever happened. It's astounding, this sort of turnaround, this sort of comeback story. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's obviously a testament to how compelling she is, not just as an artist, but as a figure and as somebody who's able to capture the public attention. So, you know, we have her leaving as a young woman, feeling not accepted by Japanese society or by her family and going to New York, not being accepted by the galleries, not being accepted by the extremely white male world to getting kicked out of the Venice Biennale in 1963 to becoming the representative for Japan at the 1993 Venice Biennale. And it's kind of a mystery what exactly that power is. The remarkable thing about Kusama's career is that these breakthrough ideas are revisited and reinterpreted again and again. These forms continue to evolve because all of them come from a very firm foundation. Okay, Tu, now let's dig into the piece you wrote for the Japan Times. It's called, Is This Yayoi Kusama's Final Evolution? You and I had talked a little about Kusama when this Louis Vuitton campaign first came out. Why did you decide to write about Kusama now? Well, I think that there's this question, you know, she's the face of this massive, who knows how many millions of dollars campaign for an extremely well-known luxury brand. It's not the most elegant execution. It's like surprisingly, <laughs> I don't know, tacky and like kind of gaudy. I think that there's some question of, you know, with given her age, given her history of mental illness, you know, a lot of her work nowadays is about how old she is and about the legacy she's going to leave behind after she's dead. I mean, right. I think there's these questions of like, is she still kind of in control of her legacy? Is there someone behind her, you know, kind of taking advantage of her in order to make money? Um, is she still sort of being true to herself as an artist and, and as a person? And, you know, I thought that it was a good time to ask some of those questions. 
And what were the answers you came up with? <laughs> I have all the answers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think it helps, you know, help me as a writer, but also it helps for readers to understand her in context and to see the larger body of her work to kind of see that this is not off base for her. She is a master of getting attention right. from the beginning when she arrived in New York and she felt like she wasn't able to, I mean, this is my read, but you know, she wasn't able to just get by just on the merits of her paintings. She had to kind of go big and she had to explode as a personality. And so, you know, this is a sort of a natural evolution for her as she just gets bigger and bigger, physically bigger, just department store sized Kusama. <laughs> Six floor Kusama, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's it's it does seem like a natural part of the progression of her as a figure. Yeah, this seems in keeping with her earlier, like when I was talking about the different tracks, you know, the kimonos, the nude happenings, the mirror balls. She creates spectacles. She is a spectacle. And these Louis Vuitton windows are just the latest iteration of that. And now, this isn't even the first time she's worked with Louis Vuitton. And of course, you know, Vuitton and other luxury brands have worked with other artists, obviously. But I really liked in this piece was your idea of her evolution into a brand, essentially. Not just because, you know, she slapped her dots onto a $500, a $1,000 bag, but that through her art and her image, she's sort of transcended just this regular person. <laughs> Could you unpack that a little bit, Kusama's evolution as a brand? Yeah, I mean, I think she, as I tried to argue, she's not confined to genre. It's not the case that she's currently moving out of you know, avant-garde art into fashion or moving out of high art into pop art or high art into the mainstream. She's always been moving between these different places and moving beyond them. She doesn't really belong in any specific category. And I think that she's always seen herself as, as she uses the word, an enterprise. I just find it kind of astounding that you know, she was an outsider, separate from everything, felt separate from everything, wasn't really doing things for other people. At least she was doing them for herself. And yet her work becomes so popular and loved around the world. You yourself said earlier that people, you know, lined up around the block just to spend 10 minutes inside one of her mirrored rooms or other exhibits. And then today, as you said in your piece, she sort of fits so neatly into meme culture and the era of Instagram. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that Kusama saw from the very beginning. Whether she dictated this change in art or whether she rode the wave, um, it's really hard to say with her. Right. But she understood the power of the image. I mean, in the 60s, everyone was kind of waking up to the power of the image, the power of photography in media and changing the mind of the public. She understood that and she was a part of that. She really, her face was seen. And I think that now the thing that her art is a part of is not only the power of the image, but the power of the user in that image and the power of individual people to make the art their own, which happens through selfies. I mean, she is just, she's really capitalized on this kind of experiential art, this kind of highly shareable, Instagrammable stuff. And people aren't going to line up for her work if they can't take a photo of themselves in it. Like those, you know, of course that art exists as well um, and still is popular among art people. But I think that what people are really excited about with her is 
to make their own version of whatever she's made um, with their face in it. So, you know, I think that it's hard to say if she shapes or if she grabs on to the times, but it kind of doesn't matter. She might be the world's most Instagrammable artist, and that's what makes her so powerful today. Hashtag Kusama. <laughs> All right, last question, too. When am I going to see you with a Louis Vuitton Kusama bag on your arm? Well, you know, I'm probably not the audience for this specific um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> a luxury brand. Um, I think the bags are actually a little bit underwhelming. They ah, mm -hmm. just kind of some dots on a Louis Vuitton bag. But I did see some really nice black heels with polka dots on the heel itself, which looked really nice. And, you know, I think I can get into that. It's just, you know, what's the two, three months of rent for some shoes? <laughs> yeah, it's only money, right? <laughs> it's only money. Life is short, buy the damn shoes. Thanks again to Tu Hung Ha for talking art and commerce with me this week. If you'd like to read more of Tu's work or learn more about Yayoi Kusama, then check out the links in the show notes of this episode. Also in the Japan Times, Jason Koskri reports on the World Baseball Classic and the excitement surrounding pitcher Ryoki Sasaki. Eric Margolis writes about the remarkable biodiversity found in some of Japan's shrine and temple gardens. And Will Fee speaks to a group of young Ukrainian evacuees learning to adapt to life in Japan. For these stories and thousands more, please consider a subscription to The Japan Times. Production for Deep Dive is by Dave Cortez. Our intern is Natalia Makahon, and the outgoing track is by Oscar Boyd. Our theme song is by Japanese artist 4L. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, patsukara-sama! Patsukara-sama!